Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dear Pastor Fisk and Dr. Kuntz, my wife and I just discovered the horrors of the nuclear incident of Chernobyl. We are in our 20s, and we realized that this was never really discussed in our schools as we were growing up, which seems strange considering its impact on Europe. In light of all the recent discussions surrounding nuclear powers in the media right now, could you both offer your insight on nuclear power and its history in the story of humanity? Thanks for all that you both do. Yeah, nuclear power, I am not nearly as skeptical about as many people are. The the risks of, let's say, accidents, the risks entailed in accidents are that much higher than some other forms of power. But when they tell you about Chernobyl or Three Mile Island, they also almost never tell you about, you know, natural disasters or industrial disasters. So people know about Chernobyl, but they don't know about Bhopal, India, a couple of years before Chernobyl, which was an industrial, sort of a chemical industrial accident. And they also don't talk about, you know, toxins present in your everyday life that may or may not be carcinogenic or otherwise destructive of one's health. So the coverage of nuclear is very selective and almost entirely negative and does not discuss its both incredible productivity and its essentially sustainable nature. And I don't mean sustainable in some sort of vague way. I mean like in a systemic way, like you can keep it going. So that is, that's my general thoughts on nuclear power. And I think the French made the right decision. They're not right now, but they historically made the right decision to invest heavily in nuclear. And we would have done well to do that. But basically because of how Three Mile Island was covered in the American press, we have not invested in nuclear in any kind of in any kind of big way or or at all in most places since the late 1970s now that is kind of you know admitted let's say along at the same time that you know california has to keep its last functioning nuclear plant diablo canyon open because of its incredible productivity and necessity to their already ailing power grid. <laughs> so at the same time that you hear about how terrifying and dangerous this is and everything like that, right? You don't hear about the benefits that nuclear offers or let's say specifically the the reasons that something like Chernobyl happens. The reasons that something like as we record this in the last couple of days, you know, to helicopters at, I think it was Fort Campbell, Kentucky, crash into each other during an exercise. So the kinds of things that would cause you to say, yes, this is dangerous in this way or that way, but we're going to deal with it in a rational fashion. 
No, what they're going to do is they're going to terrify you with something and then suggest that somehow that's going to be replaced by whatever wind power or, or I don't know. Since they couldn't come up with a similar incident to Chernobyl or Three Mile Island with coal-fired power plants, they just just sheerly demonize coal. And that's the way that they attack that energy source. But nuclear has suffered a lot more bad press than than coal has until recently. I think it's interesting that they terrify you and then they use that experience of fear to convince you that the cause of your fear is a moral evil right. that must be yep. opposed yep. Uh, as opposed to just you know the odds of the game. And so you've got to risk, you got to throw the dice at some point. Uh, I, I also think that it seems to me it's just me uh, that like you're a lot more likely to have a through my island meltdown accident kind of place when you only got one of these things and you're just so filled with red tape and bureaucracy that you don't really care about it, but you need it. In fact, you're going to overtax it in order to make up for the failed policies you got going everywhere else, like what's in California. To me, that seems far more dangerous a situation than if they had 15 of these running because well, then you'd have 15 of these running. You have a lot of people know what they're doing. They would have to. Right. But when you when you half shutter the thing and then try to milk it for all it's worth on the way out, that that just seems to me like how accidents happen. Um, all of that said, you know, from my own point of view, I think I'm completely with Dr. Kuntz on, you know, in my in my public policy, like nuclear all the way. We just you got to do this. This is the way that we have electricity in the future if we're not stupid. Um, it's, it's the cleanest way to do it ultimately, if you follow the real science. Um, and in that regard, then it becomes the most cost efficient and best for the planet and, and then best for everybody. Uh, overall, you do have to deal with waste. You always got to deal with waste. Uh, you gotta deal with human waste too. At the end of the day, it's just right. part of it. But the alternative is to go the, the so-called green energy route, which more or less means uh, electricity electricity for for what is it for thee and for for me and not for thee and all this. Uh, who's who's really going to get <laughs> yeah. to have the electricity at the right. end of the day? The cost of power is going to go up. I'm not saying you won't have any, but can you run everything you want to run? Can you run the things you need to run, like your car? Because you can only have a car that's electrical because they're saying that too, and on and on and on. To me, a, a bigger question that's lost in behind all of this with nuclear is just this, uh, that physics and quantum physics and uh, quantum mechanics and in this way then nuclear power and the study of the atom is to me one of the most mis, uh, misnomered schools of thought in the world today uh, because it's where science gets to say uh, we don't believe in anything except for we can measure and touch exclusively and we don't believe in the unseen um but we only believe in what we can we can touch uh oh by the way here's all the stuff we can't measure we don't understand we can't see but we can make it blow up and kind of control it um ha ha you christians are stupid there's no angels there's no demons there's no nothing behind the scenes um it's just one of those places where i think christians should excel because we do believe that there is more going on that meets the eye when you run into things like Schrodinger's cat or, or other questions of quantum physics and you, it's like, oh, what's going on? It looks like the universe is paying attention. Like we have so many ways of answering that just with pure piety that, that we ought to be at the forefront of figuring out how to use these kinds of uh, uh, knowledge uh, that we've that the pagans have found, you know, how to blow up an atom. We we found this kind of knowledge. You know, we ought to be able to use this uh, for the absolute best ends and with a deeper understanding um, than just hey, let's shoot stuff at each other and, and hope it 
it blows up. Or, of course, Dr. Koontz, I can't forget that, you know, the nuclear detonation initially happening over that one island you pointed me to, uh, the Twitter thread. This is all about some oh, like, yeah. Ghostbusters-style uh, demonic horde opening a portal above the Earth. So you got to take that into account, too, when you... When you... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so the, the, the idea that the pursuit of splitting the atom and then the the use and the testing the detonation particularly over the pacific and in the american southwest of nuclear weapons had let's say uh, to be a little bit neutral a metaphysical aspect to it hmm. and metaphysical meaning beyond physics right is that physics is going to be is always grounded in metaphysics and people can ignore that or pretend like it's not real but they will also find themselves when they come into that you know contact or within range of that much power that much velocity that much light that much speed with forces over which they do not have control and i mean that to be both a physical and a metaphysical statement forces over which they do not have control so when you're talking about nuclear power, I think that you're talking about something that is fundamentally good in the sense that it is an engineering solution. It is a it's it's not a it's not a question of metaphysical speculation. It is the deployment of the knowledge that we do have, forces over which we do have some control for an end that produces a certain abundance of of life and and of life possibilities that is really what people are remembering when they're looking at you know sunlit images of the 1950s that's there there's there's a technological achievement behind all of that and you know i just you know, true confessions time i have a i have a particular love of aviation and the history of aviation and there is no more daring or beautiful time than about 1941 or 42 for the next 30 years in American aviation. And a lot of what we're still using was was invented then. So you're dealing with a time of both technological achievement, but in every case behind those technological achievements. So you look at Kelly Johnson at Skunk Works. So you look at other, both also pilots, Chuck Yeager, one of many exiled West Virginians important to American history. You look at these people and there is both, there, there's, there's both personal achievement, mathematical achievement, engineering achievement, but there's also a desire to find out what is possible. And I think that any society that neither encourages those men nor makes it possible for them to achieve those things, really shouldn't. So this is this is a, a qualification or a, a nuance or something to what I said earlier, really shouldn't mess around with things like nuclear power because who's going to who's going to be my nuclear engineer? Is it going to be somebody who spent most of Zier's time thinking about whether Zier was actually like a male? I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually being facetious. Like I'm wondering like how much, how much, how much capability do we actually have? And if our capability is low, then no, I don't want us messing around with anything more dangerous than a steam engine <laughs> because we're going to destroy. Th I mean, yeah. the, like, like a finely tuned machine, you know, a nuclear power station is meant to be run by capable men. And if, if we don't have those, or if we're punishing them for being capable, 
then, you know, I don't want nuclear power. And you don't got a choice. You're, what you're going to get is the, the worst of both worlds uh, for a while, it looks like, wherein you have a society increasingly not able to hire qualified workers for their positions uh, and unable to shut down the uh, massive, uh, amazing blow-up machines uh, that we, we set up already. This is where, again, like, I, I honestly think Christians have the capacity to, to be the future uh, that we are above all people, those who believe in what is possible uh, in that we know that the God who made this universe is capable of all things, yeah. uh, including entering that universe, right. uh, that he reigns as a man, that a man's mind, uh, which we have in Christ, is capable of, of discerning between uh, bone and marrow, right? Uh, and so uh, if there's any place where I think Christians uh should be pursuing life right now, aside from public policy, you know, getting involved in your local government and all this kind of stuff, uh, getting into the realm of quantum physics and specifically to go in it to just destroy string theory, get the, get out of string theory and into some other form of, of speculation and imagination that will allow you to break the, the cycle of confusion that's, that's dominated that sphere of, of, uh, science for, for 30, 40 years again, because similarly, just like aviation, uh, in that realm, you are dealing with, uh, nothing new for a very long time now. And we are living on the dregs of, of previous generations, um, uh, understanding. And they said themselves, it was incomplete that they didn't have the full solution. Einstein was not satisfied with his equation. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm not saying I don't have the answer. I'm saying that Christians should be able to care and pursue such imaginative future without having the institutions that are collapsing stop us. And there's so many places, Adam, I think, where uh, in, in science today, I don't just mean like nuclear science, but in science today, uh, where Christians could just run circles around others, because like you said, they're too busy worrying about their pronouns uh, at the same time as, as trying to, you know, maintain some sort of a level evolutionary theory uh, to support their, you know, their philosophy of science rather than uh, with the facts they're digging up on the earth. So um, it's just, it's, a, it's a something that means a lot to me. Uh, and it really is something I think that it's going to mean a lot to our future if our Lord uh, tarries, uh, that this era of Christians, this generation of Christians, uh, we're not just satisfied to be uh, <laughs> engineers. Uh, we need we need good engineers too. Uh, we're yeah. not just satisfied to be, you know, school teachers though, right? And that's fine. If you want to go teach in school, it's fine. You know, church workers, that's fine. We need that too, right? Um, but like, we can't just hide in the corner like the Puritans and expect everyone else to leave us alone because it's not always how it works out. And it's not, not the best segue, but it kind of is a softball. No, it's a, segue. I think it's a good, se- it's yeah. a good segue. It's a good segue because what we're focusing on this week, as well as a couple of weeks after this are the people group that I think are most influential, if certainly not most numerous or most pleasant to be around. <laughs> Of all the groups that go into the sort of founding mix of the United States of America, what becomes the United States of America. And the segue is great, actually, because they come out of a time of immense ferment. And we have sort of like the word entrepreneurial, we sort of think of ferment, it's a good thing. And it is a good thing. And it's a, you know, it's a productive thing when you're looking for a fermented food. But it's really bad if you're not looking for a fermented food and it's definitely unstable, whatever else it is. And we are in a time similar to that 
similar to 16th and early 17th century England in that a lot of things that were once secure and certain and men whose ways of life were tailored to those secure things and those certain things, all of that is passing away. So, you know, of all the things that we'll talk about this week and and the next couple, the thing that I find most sympathetic about the people who become the founders of what not actually originally other places were called, including Virginia, were called New England, Nova Anglia before it, but what will come to be New England and what will come to be Puritans or later on will be called Yankees. That group, the thing that I find most sympathetic about it, and it is, you know, it's it's half my family tree, is their desire to do something better than what it is that they would otherwise have to deal with, that they're not just going to sit around and take it. And we'll talk about that on an ideological or a theological level, but also on a life level, you'll find that this group will not be sourced from people who are doing well, either with the ferment of 16th and 17th century England, or who just for reasons beyond their control, have to just sort of accept that that ferment and react to it, which will be the case when we talk more about the Scots-Irish, who are much poorer, more obscure, and don't have nearly as many personal options. I resent that. I resent that comment, just for the record. (laughs) The people who are going to become called later on the Yankees at least realize that if they're going to have a way of life more amenable to themselves, and we will talk today about the different aspects, what are they looking for? What are they trying to improve? What are they trying to change? If they're going to find something like that, no one's going to give it to them. And that that is that is a spirit that you'll find in pretty much all of the early colonists, uh, most of the groups anyway, but it's one that's sort of predominant in the Puritans. And that is not a spirit that I find predominant among right-wing or conservative or traditional people or Christians or political conservatives today. I find much more a spirit of both these things existing at the same time, immense disappointment alongside immense complaint. So the disappointment and the complaint go together. And the reason they go together is that because you're not really doing anything or the things that you are that you are doing, you're looking to be secure things almost immediately. And then maybe they're not, and then maybe they don't work. Because of that, because you're not you're not really thinking for, well, what's going to happen in a hundred years? And can I set up something that will work in a hundred years? You're looking for this is going to change within the next electoral cycle of your country, of your state, of your church, whatever. Because of that, you are very, very often disappointed and enraged or irritated or reactive, complaining generally because the world is just sort of slapping you in the face over and over and over again. And the world slaps everybody and every group in the face. You know, it, I mean, that's, that's just life under the sun for now. But what I find commendable about the Puritans is that in reaction to the different problems that they had, and then in search of the solutions that they, that they wanted, 
they did not just sort of sit down and take it. And that will define the group for a very long time afterward until they sort of play themselves out in the 20th century as such. They will not just sit down and take it. They will, in fact, try to seize what they're looking for. And that that spirit, I think, is going to be fundamental to understanding America. But it's definitely fundamental to understand this group that's so influential in American history. So distinguish between pilgrims and Puritans. Yeah. And this is this is part of what I would call simultaneously their familiarity and their unfamiliarity. So the group that are called the Pilgrims or used to be called the Pilgrim Fathers, there's a monument that you can go to in Massachusetts called the Monument to the Forefathers. The Pilgrims are people who religiously in the all of the various options that you get, both formally in English history. So what does Church of England mean, right? That's And that's still up for grabs on a theological level today. It, the the, the way that the English settled it was the monarch is the head of the church. The pope is not the head of the church. Everything else is sort of perpetually up for grabs, right? So so English religion has not been, if it ever was, right? Depends on your view of the Middle Ages, but it certainly has not been since the Reformation. Confessional, that is extremely doctrinally specific. And that's true for all of the countries founded by England, including the United States of America, Right, founded in a cultural sense or a historical sense, obviously not in a political sense for the U.S. So if it's not confessional, then you have a certain range of options. Okay. And your range of options, some of it is going to be legal. So you can be a Calvinist or you can be an Arminian on the question of salvation inside the Church of England. Now, you might there might be political consequences for being a Calvinist at some time and then different consequences for being an Arminian at a different time in a different diocese. So that's that's the way that works, but like you're not going to be persecuted out of existence. The pilgrims, the founders of Plymouth Colony, which is a part of what is now the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, are people who have opted out of that framework altogether, which is possible in certain parts of the British Isles, particularly in London, and then in what's the county of East Anglia, way out on the eastern edge of of England. It's possible because you can't be policed in everything all of the time. They can't police every gathering. They can't, you know. So, So you get people who, especially once the Bible is somewhat available in English, in areas of highest literacy, you're going to get people who say, I don't agree with what the priest says, or I don't agree with what, you know, Bishop Hooper says, or whatever the case may be. And they begin to gather. Those groups are originally called the separatists. They will fragment theologically, again, creating a dynamic that is going to be very familiar in American religious history, too, is that people who are reading the Bible get together and then eventually kind of fragment off because they realize they don't agree on what they're reading in the Bible. And out of groups called separatists, in the late 16th century and the very early 17th century, you'll get groups spread between the British Isles and what's now the Netherlands that are going to be the forefathers of everything from Congregationalists to Baptists to certain variants of other things, but mainly Congregationalists and Baptists. One of those groups 
who has, and this this might be part of their familiarity for the listeners, one of those groups initially leaves England to practice freely and openly in the Netherlands. And then this might be something familiar. They realize that their children are growing up to be Dutch instead of English, and they want them to stay English. That's This is one of the sort of like child's own you know versions of the Pilgrim story. That whole group and the Plymouth Colony are until 1693 completely separate, completely separate from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is much larger, whose heart and soul has always been Boston, and who are Puritans because they they do not want to leave, but they want to purify the Church of England in ways that will eventually, especially after the end of the English Civil War and the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, that's not going to be sustainable inside the Church of England. And in practice, and this is this is maybe the, the biggest thing to understand that's going to be unfamiliar, in practice, what is happening in England rarely matters when you are far enough away in America. So this is a factor to pay attention to throughout this entire series, however long we do this is distance. And once you realize not only how large the American continent is, but also how far away, particularly in 1655, it is from England, the fact that the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay Colony, who are going to numerically overwhelm the pil- what are called the pilgrims and sort of amalgamate them you know, gradually into what will be identified as a congregationalist state church. Those people, they might claim to be Anglicans or to be part of the Church of England, but but functionally they're not because they don't have bishops and a variety of other kind of theological minutiae. But the thing that I think is unfamiliar about that is that you have to realize that once you have distance, the impulse to stay together, even with people that you said, yeah, I want to be, I want to be with you. I want to agree with you. I want to, you know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It just doesn't matter. And that sounds, I think, trivial, but it goes along with something we said earlier in the series about the frontier is that the experience of being distant is it, it, it's going to come to matter more than the idea that theoretically there are people thousands of miles away that I agree with, you know, and I see people argue on the internet, who knows how physically distant they are from each other, but what they're usually arguing about are hypotheticals or things you would, you know, we would all, we would all sign this piece of paper or we'd all sign this statement or we'd all repost this meme or whatever. And those things are like, it's not that that's nothing, that's no connection, but it really does not have any kind of power compared to suffering together in actual practice. And I think the idea that somehow you're going to hold things together through pieces of paper, through prior commitments, through a history that becomes increasingly unreal for a rising generation is very foolish because even where there's an entire group that's vastly more powerful than the pilgrims eventually in the Puritans, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they say, we want to be with England, we want to be English, this is New England, they still begin to forge their own way and their own identity, not only because they 
always had somewhat different commitments, but because you end up caring a lot more about people that you're actually suffering with than people that know nothing, nothing about those sufferings and, and are not and won't be there to help you. So you got right up to a line there that might make some, some Lutherans a bit uncomfortable. Uh, it, it's almost as if you implied that the confessions aren't really sufficient to hold a body together. The confessions, in the case of the Lutheran confessions or, or any, I mean, I'm talking about not just the specific content of a confession, but the, let's say, like the dynamics of how confessions work is the distinction that you're going to get in any group that is sort of like actually thinking about its own behavior between paper and practice. And what I'm talking about here is entirely practice. So having something on paper is better than not. I mean, I think some of the theological chaos of Anglo and Anglo-American history is due to the inability of the state, unlike states in continental Europe, to be clearly anything except not Roman Catholic. And it's really, I mean, it's very interesting to me how that dynamic gets replicated down to the present day. I mean, <laughs> people in all kinds of churches, including Lutheran churches, will go along with this, that, and the other thing as long as it's not Catholic, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's, you know, that is historically and for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years that that's beyond the pale. So if it's identified as Roman Catholic, that's beyond the pale. And that, that is part of our theological heritage as English speaking people, right? Whatever our other particular confessional commitments are. But the, I think larger point that I'm making is, is about the difference between, okay, you have something on paper that is great. This is so true and so clear. And Lutherans almost more, I mean, Roman Catholics have more pieces of paper, certainly floating around that they're supposed to be committed to for this, that, and the other reason. But Lutherans have more than almost any other Protestant group, right? We we might have more than anybody else on paper. And then you have groups, you know, synods, churches, denominations, whatever you want to call them, that have very strict commitments to those pieces of paper. That's great, right? That's, you know, that's really good, right? So now I know what you're supposed to be doing. But my point is that has to actually happen. And that if it's not happening, then the things that are not the piece of paper that are right in front of you, and particularly the people and the experiences, and that's going to matter in practice a lot more than the piece of paper that no one's actually using. So the question here is use, right? So in the case of the Puritans, for example, as well as the pilgrims, both of whom, you know, I mean, New England is sort of settled somewhat by accident. They were trying to go to Virginia. They didn't make it. <laughs> so they ended up somewhere basically as humid and, and not nearly as warm, right? Um, what happens in practice is that the Church of England is sufficiently both politically and theologically disinterested in occupying any kind of permanent position in New England. And due to the legal circumstances of settlement, including not only the Mayflower Compact might be familiar, 
but also things that would be less familiar, like the Charter of Massachusetts Bay Colony or the Charter of the Connecticut Colony when that comes into existence in the 1640s, settled from Massachusetts. They are not really able to bring those people back into the fold. So this is how you get a dynamic in America that often doesn't exist with immigrant groups and that immigrant groups have trouble understanding not only the range of religious options in America, but also the fact that, well, you know, just because you're this doesn't mean that you have to be that religiously because Anglo-Americans are, are nothing that they have to be by virtue of their ethnicity. So the, the connection between ethnicity and religious commitment is much looser and it, and in some ways certainly today but even historically as long as you're as long as you're not roman catholic it's missing for anglo-americans so if somebody's last name is browning the, the you know the most famous brownings in american history were mormons okay the gun gun designers but they could be mormon right but they could be Unitarian or they could be Episcopalian or Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist, you know, and if they're from Kentucky, they're likelier to be one kind of religion rather than another, at least historically. But so that link that exists for, well, I'm, I'm Irish Catholic, I'm German Lutheran, you know, and then my festivals, unlike the Greek Orthodox, I don't sell my ethnic food, but on Reformation Day, we always have German food. That's broken for most of American religion. There is no such thing. So that's that's important to understand is that confessional commitment is an individual commitment almost from the first, partly because the Church of England and the government of the Kingdom of England is both unable and usually uninterested in enforcing the same kind of practical, that's what I'm talking about, practical confessional unity that you get in continental states, whether Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism or in, you know, a couple cases, Calvinism. So, I mean, you have a, you have a lax hand from, from the mother church that enables some uh, cross-pollination taking place in an area that right. is already separatist minded in the sense of you're not there unless you're trying to do something different. Yes. Uh, right. You know, and so everyone's got that in the water. And the result then is that in these two different groups, pilgrims and Puritans, uh, pilgrims being smaller, uh, smaller and, and earlier and yeah. more radical, uh, yes. they end up being the strain that really flavors the melting pot uh, at the end of it. And the, the Puritans end up being, you know, while not intentionally separatists, uh, some of the uh, the fuel for the fire of right. what will be the freedom cry, uh, which is tied into the first great revival, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that, that leads into the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And I would I would say this is that both in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, for sure, but even in the Plymouth Colony, is that the particular commitments and desire to go to church every Sabbath, probably twice, that that never is, and it never has to be, an absolutely unanimous conviction for everyone in, the, in that society. Because what actually matters for the fact that these are both colonies and then 
once they are sort of rechartered and brought under royal political control, and if certainly not royal religious control, once that happens, the reason that they are the way they are, that you know, it's Massachusetts and Connecticut that have state churches into the 1820s and 1830s, okay, like long after supposedly the First Amendment was, you know, banning <laughs> public Christianity in America. It didn't, obviously. But how did that, why did that endure like that, right? Is because you don't need to have every single person that gets off a boat in 1638 in Massachusetts Bay Colony to have, to be utterly convinced of everything or even cognizant of everything that he's that's now going to shape his life theologically. It doesn't matter. And it was probably always, this is why practice matters so much more than paper. Paper is great and it's necessary, especially for hashing things out. If you notice between professional theologians, if you're talking about a confession, or if you're talking about a law between professional lawyers or standards of practice for whoever, right? Paper is necessary and you have to be clear. But the reason you particularly have to be clear is because you want the practice to be clear and uniform. That's what actually shapes people. So the idea that you would call Sunday a Sabbath and that you would do no work is no more obviously normal to some Englishman in 1639 than it is to some Italian who comes to America in 1902 and is shocked that everything's closed on Sunday, right? Or all the, you know, Midwesterners that visit Gettysburg and are shocked to find they can't buy liquor in Pennsylvania on Sunday. They're always just so upset by it. Why is it like that? It's like that because the practice has been made uniform by a group that understands that the way that you get things done is by making what you're doing seem obvious and clear, not by explaining it all and not even by getting everybody to sign on. You're just saying, this is the way we do things. And then most people are going to be like, okay, <laughs> right? And that group that ensures those things in both Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colonies is relative to the population. It's a bigger proportion in Plymouth. Uh, certainly it's a majority at the start. But it's never a huge group, and it's mostly ministers and government officials. And what they do is they say, this is this is how we do things. So if you're going to move to Massachusetts Bay Colony, this is what you're going to do. And that's actually going to be attractive to people. I mean, some people, we'll talk about the middle colonies later on in the series. Some people from the middle colonies realize that Puritanism is just not a going proposition in, say, Maryland. And so they move to New England. Right, they, they they start raising tobacco in a middle colony, and then eventually they move to New England because it's just, you know, things work right there, you know, according to their lights. So, what you're what you're always getting is this dynamic where, if you have a group that was persecuted, that then develops any kind of self consciousness, they don't need to convince absolutely everybody of everything that they've ever thought. All they need to do is provide a functioning society that other people could take part in. And then lo and behold, those other people will say, yeah, we we love going to church twice on the Sabbath, right? We love not being able to do public sports on the Sabbath, right? All of those things that were once strange will come to seem normal and obvious and clear 
and will be practically uniform. And that's that's the difference between New England and any of the other colonies is that their elite succeeds in making what they do seem to the general population normal. What makes that possible? I think you've got at least two factors. One is you have an elite who understands itself as such. And in the case of Puritans, the, the dynamic is actually a lot like Lutheran societies in that the clergy and the state, state officials, let's say lawyers, governors, military men, works in tandem to provide a clear set of directives for life. So these are going to be called in New England, they're, they're pretty much, they're always going to be called compacts or covenants. It's it's a it, different words. It's really the same idea. This is the way that we do things. And, and here's a public statement of what they are. Okay. But that group is self-consciously doing that and then providing institutions. And the first and, and greatest institution for this is, is Harvard College. One like unto it will be Yale. They're going to provide institutions that that elite will be shaped by in itself, right? So American colleges are not only going to provide a certain kind of an education, what we would now call a classical education, but they don't they don't just exist to provide an education because a lot of people, including famous New Englanders of all kinds, Cotton Mather, Jonathan Edwards, are going to be more or less what we would call homeschooled, okay? Eventually, New England, as we talked about a long time ago, will be the genesis of public education. But th that is not really the point, certainly not in the first 100 years. The point in the first 100 years of education is to keep the elite on the same page and propagating the culture, the doctrines, the practices that the founders envisioned. And so college is not college is not exactly for learning, okay? It is and it is. I mean, it is, okay? It's not... Harvard is not the complete waste of one's academic time that, say, Oxford in, in the same period usually was. I mean, you would just sort of go there to party, right? So you have to think of Oxford sort of in some ways like, you know, your local, you know, party school, state university, right? The point of a college is so that you get the right people together. It really is that simple. And that elite... That's how it's propagated. But the place that it starts is really from that group undergoing severe persecution. So with the pilgrims, that is going to be persecution as an entire group. With the Puritans, it's more often going to be individual persecution. And then those people find each other or, or come to know each other in the new world. Because now there's a haven to go if you were... If you were kicked out of your church because you wouldn't swear allegiance to the king as the head of the church because you believe that Jesus is the head of the church or you won't wear vestments or whatever other objections that various Puritans might have had, if that's the case, then you can come together by, by being together in this new place. And in that new place, you understand, obviously, the value of being able to practice your life practice your faith in accord with what you actually believe rather than having to hide it or do it openly and be persecuted for it. So an elite that has come out of 
the furnace of persecution then figures out, I think, very, very effectively how to propagate themselves well, which will create a certain uniformity and a clarity about life that no other set of colonies, and I'm going to take New England as sort of a group because it really is a group demographically and religiously, no other colony really succeeds in doing anything like this. Certainly does not, and with Pennsylvania, we'll really see this Pennsylvania completely fails to line up with its founder's vision. <laughs> New England doesn't, even without an, one, a single extremely wealthy family to patronize it and to govern it. New England, even though it's a group, succeeds much, much, much better in staying aligned with its founder's understanding of what they're there for, to be the city set upon a hill, to be a light unto the world, than any other group founded anywhere in the Americas does. And so again, what what is the secret sauce to that? I mean, I I, I think that the secret it it's not as it's not a secret ingredient like go buy this ingredient and put it in and then it's going to taste amazing. It's a secret ingredient like you need to realize that persecution is actually a good thing for you. If you do something with it, if you just say, why am I being persecuted? I'm being persecuted. Why am I being persecuted? then it's not going to be of much future value. The point is that if you use the persecution to further your group's cohesion, then it is of immense value in every way. But you have to let yourself be a group, and then you have to say, okay, what is good for the group, not what is good for me or, you know, how do we go back to... This is, I think, part of the sort of failure of vision that a lot of people have right now is that they're trying to get back to something, right? So they're, you know, if you are James Lindsay, you're trying to get back to, you know, 1998 or something, right? Sometime when people were allowed to be more or less reasonable in public, maybe still, right? Or you're trying to, you're nostalgic because you were born in 1998, so you're nostalgic for the 1980s or you're nostalgic for the 1950s, or whatever it is that you're looking for. And that can inspire you, I suppose, but it's not going to give you what you are actually seeking, because in the present day, you have to help a group that is currently suffering in a great, in a, in a, in a very large way. You have to help that, you have to give that group a certain hope about the future not just a nostalgia for a past where they weren't suffering like this. And that is what the group of founders successfully does, is that they can inspire in people a desire for a future in which they will be allowed to govern their churches in accordance with the New Testament as they understand it, right? Or that they will be able to not have to swear on godly oaths to a monarch who is not himself converted, right? Or the, the various objections that they have to the way that England is working, now we can rid ourselves of these things. And what they do is very opportune. They take advantage of the fact that America, just as, a, as an entire sort of unknown wilderness, is a place of enormous speculative investment. That's basically still true, right? So they know that groups like the Virginia Company, that's a that's a stock company, will invest in new colonies. So there's there's a combination here of saying 
on an ideological level, on a theological level, here's what I want to see. This is what I want to get done. On a practical level, here are people who, though they don't agree with me, can help me get that done. And that's basically the founding of each New England colony, either directly out of the Virginia Company and its desire to see investments realized, or indirectly coming out of a previous colony. So Maine and New Hampshire are going to come out of Massachusetts and Connecticut's going to come out of Massachusetts and Connecticut will settle what becomes Long Island and, and so on. All of that is is this combination of here's what I want to achieve that nobody's letting me achieve. Here are practical ways to get it done with people who don't even really want to achieve those things with me, but they're going to help me achieve them. So the ability to recognize both a need of what's going on around them. That's where the persecution comes in. So there's yeah. a shared there's a shared need that is seen and then not only seen, uh, but harnessed. Uh, this also is going to be connected to a refusal to be victimized, which I think is pretty important uh, to, to recognize that um, when seeing a situation that was less than ideal, the yeah. answer was, we shall make it better than it is. Uh, as opposed to kind of where I'd like to go with this a little bit is back toward that comment about um, kind of disappointment followed by cynicism or, or scoffing yeah. kind of being yeah. the way things go. Uh, but so you had this uh, this forge of persecution creating these needs that were shared. Um, you also had a shared ideology about uh, really, you know, conviction and right. integrity right. And, and, you know, creation being a designed and logical and orderly place. Um, and then it sounds like, though, also like this idea that uh, you didn't have to agree on everything to agree on important things. And this sounds so like something I just used to hate, you know, major in the majors, minor in the minors, and, and the the slippery slope and, and fast track to ecumenical blah, blah, nothingism is definitely a specter that, you know, will hover over my shoulder as I say these comments. Um, but no, really, really, like if the zombies are outside the gate, um, we can quibble over, you know, your view of, you know, the typological understanding of Isaiah nine later, um, you know, and, and, and deal with what's in front of us. And so uh, figuring out where yeah. that really is, where those lines yeah. really are practically now, let me go back to that despair versus cynicism comment though. So yeah, figuring out where that is not in a chat room, <laughs> you know, figuring out where that really is in your neighborhood, down your street, uh, in your uh, greater county area, uh, who are your actual allies and and what are they also feeling? What are their churches? What are the Christians are feeling and concerned about what you're concerned about? It doesn't mean you all have to try to run the school board. Maybe it does though. I don't know, right? Um, but you know the more time that you spend, kind of going, oh, there it goes again. One more time. Look, it's all going to crash. Ha ha. Meme it. Meme it, everybody. Like that action doesn't get you more unified with anybody who's going to do anything. What it does is it gets you more built into kind of the, the kick the can despair. It's all on TV and maybe the white hat Q Trump show will, will 
playoff anyway. Uh, let's hope, right? But it doesn't get you with hands in the dirt where you are. Uh, and so somewhere in there, Dr. Coons, you know, a, a yeah. mixture of persecution, uh, an integrity of thought and understanding, uh, which then has limits, but also it doesn't insist that everyone else follow those limits, provided that we all follow the limits we've agreed to follow. And, and how do you do that locally now? not just at your district convention, although that's another kind of issue altogether. So, so yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to give you an example of sort of how this, how this operates in practice, two different, two different things from New England history. One is you, some, some things that used to be familiar about the Pilgrim Fathers, as they were generally called a little inaccurately, was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poems about them because these poems were taught pretty much throughout the public school system because the public school system is 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 a Yankee product. And the courtship of Miles Standish was something that that kids sort of used to know. Miles Standish being a famous soldier in New England history. Miles Standish was not the historical Miles Standish was not was not a particularly religious man, like many people who came to Massachusetts Bay Colony especially. Uh, not particularly religious or or filled with fervent, intense conviction about everything. You know, that's a, there's a certain percentage of any population that is just not going to care very much. And partly this is going to have to do with temperament and, and life experience and lots of other things. So how do you get Miles Standish to not destroy everything or to care a little bit more or whatever? You behave as if the standards that you've set for society are pretty obvious and that they're clear. So here's the compact or here's the covenant. And that's going to be monitored or or dealt with by first local authorities, the local congregation, as well as the local town authorities. That's kind of a, it's not a settlement, but an, an area in New England, a town. And they're going to make sure that Miles Standish is not, you know, doing whatever, selling stuff on the Sabbath, because we don't do that here. So I think the the observation there is simply that practical standards for life are much more powerful for continuity, clarity than the idea that somehow abstract convictions are just going to carry everybody away. So that's that's one example. And that's where abstract convictions are necessary, abstracts of doctrine called confessions and creeds are necessary, but the practical standard matters a lot more. The other example is that New England gives you an option, and there's especially one part of New England that only exists because of this option, that's Rhode Island, which is originally two separate colonies itself. Rhode Island exists because if you don't like what is happening in Plymouth or Massachusetts Bay, you can go somewhere else. So the solution to dealing with the fact that sometimes people have wildly different convictions, and that's going to affect not just their practice, but also their teaching, is separation. That you don't need to keep everyone together on everything. So if you are a Baptist, for example, you can you you don't need to run around being discontented in New England or I'm sorry, in Massachusetts or in Connecticut, you can go to Rhode Island and you can be a Baptist there. 
so that's why you know the the ivy in rhode island brown was was a baptist school for its and america's oldest baptist church is right there in providence so the idea that separation can be necessary and and just sometimes needs to happen is always going to be on the table but again that relies on space <laughs> so if you don't have space or if you can't imagine separating then yeah you're going to have a lot more problems and and eventually they will and will We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about sort of the downgrade or the the degradation of New England, which happens first theologically and then practically, because they're going to eventually come to a point where the idea that you would separate, even if you have a completely different understanding of God, becomes unthinkable. And it's that refusal to separate both by the innovators, but also by the people who won't kick the innovators out, that becomes their biggest problem. Now that sounds like something that's inherited here on a number of levels in the the American system. Yeah, I think I think that one thing about that refusal to separate or or conversely a heritage of separation is that the ability to separate if you need to to say you need to leave or to say I'm going to leave also relies on what you described as not you know, not seeking victimhood. And I, I think it's it's it is very, very, very telling that even with Yankee descended groups that are not, that are, that aren't even Christian anymore, like Mormons, but they're very much Yankee descended, that that whole group, okay, is that they can go through absolutely horrendous things and nobody except some of themselves remember that it happened. <laughs> so if I tell you that, you know, Mormons were almost exterminated by the state of Missouri or that the Puritans were hunted down by bands of, you know, Arminian episcopacy enforcing, you know, troops in England, you you probably don't know that stuff. And I, I wouldn't think that you would know that stuff. But it's very telling that if you say Yankee or Mormon, nobody thinks suffering even though both groups are really forged by suffering. I mean, they, they don't exist without suffering. They're not just, they're not just like uh, like Christian science, which is another Yankee descended religious movement where it's just sheer conviction. You know, a bunch of people decide, I don't believe in material reality. It's not just the conviction. It's the, I mean, the suffering and the persecution forge very, very, very powerful group identities that then have centuries long effects right generally positive for the group's well-being but other people when i mean if i say if i say jews or gypsies or black americans people think suffering but they don't in the case of these groups who go through equally you know group-wide shaping experiences of persecution and i think that this is one of the keys to why they become really disproportionately influential a book i'll recommend again in the series is by Stuart Holbrook called The Yankee Exodus, which talks about their impact on everything that isn't New England in the United States, starting with upstate New York. And it's enormous. I mean, you you pick a state university, maybe outside the Southeast, and even some inside, and they started it, right? Very disproportionately influential, but you don't think of them particularly as suffering. And I, I think that that is 
that is key to understanding. I mean, a group doesn't necessarily choose its suffering or its persecution, or, you know, a person doesn't say, well, I believe in congregational church government because I want my eyes gouged out by the police. You know, I mean, that's not why you pick that. But the question is, what are you going to do with your suffering? Yeah, you don't pick it. You're not trying to entice suffering. You don't need to scream about how you're being persecuted all of the time, but sometimes it comes to you. What are you going to do with it? That's that's really the question. Lots of people go through the furnace of persecution. Not everyone comes out more useful to the master on the other side. So you want to ask yourself, okay, what am I going to do with what's happening to me? Not just, why is this happening to me? Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. You're listening to a Brief History Power, you know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find... God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish 
may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.